Got a Bible with you. Open up to John, John chapter 16. This morning, we're going to finish up the upper room discourse we've been looking at for several weeks here of John chapter 16. Actually, it started back in John 13, and then next week, Lord willing, we'll move into Jesus in John 17. But I've entitled today's message as The Art and Science of Biblical Communication. The Art and Science of Biblical Communication. Maybe if I were going to title it again, I could say The Art and Science of Jesus' Teaching started thinking biblical communication can mean a lot of things. So specifically, this is really the art and science of Jesus's teaching. We're in John chapter 16, verse 25 through the end of the chapter. Jesus says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for this morning, the opportunity to dive into your word. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking these words so clearly to your disciples, so many spirit that you would open our ears to hear and our minds to understand what it is that Jesus said in this passage that we could be changed and conformed more and more into the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, prospective students trying to chart their course through college may find themselves wondering about the difference between the Bachelor of Arts degree and a Bachelor of Science degree. Both the Bachelor of Arts degree, known as a BA, and the Bachelor of Science degree, known as a BS, are four-year undergraduate degrees. And the primary difference between the two types of degrees is the focus of their coursework that students are required to complete in order to earn that particular degree. A Bachelor of Arts degree program provides students with a more expansive education credits that are directly linked to a particular major. Instead, students are expected to earn credits in a variety of liberal arts subjects, courses in the humanities, in English, in social sciences, and in foreign languages typically are part of this degree program. The Bachelor of Arts degree is commonly offered in fields like English, art, music, modern languages, and communication. Programs resulting in a Bachelor of Science degree are generally more strictly focused on their subject matter, uh, subject matter requiring more credits that are directly linked to that major. 
Students are expected to concentrate their academic energies on mastering the technical and practical facets of their field. They have fewer opportunities to explore topics outside of their subject of their major, Bachelor of Science degree, technical and scientific areas like computer science, pre-medicine, mathematics, biochemistry, and physics. Adam, why are you telling us all this information? Are you a new counselor at the master's university telling me what kind of degree I need to get? No, I am not. But I am acknowledging that there are two separate degrees in our American Western system. There are degrees in the arts and there are degrees in the sciences. And part of what we see in this passage this morning is that we are going to acknowledge that there is an art and there is a science to communicating God's word. Jesus taught eternal truths using these two rules of thought. He communicated eternal truths using literary devices, taught didactically declaring God's word. Jesus used the literary devices of similes and metaphors. He used irony, symbolism, and personification. Jesus used imagery, euphemisms, and foreshadowing. Jesus told stories with a spiritual truth called parables. Jesus was a master of the arts, but Jesus also had a very technical style of teaching as well. He was very clear, very precise, and very accurate. And Jesus engineered sermons to address specific issues. And Jesus preached propositional, objective truth. Jesus did not seek to be ambiguous, but to be exact and to be faithful. Jesus didn't make suggestions. He preached with authority. And Jesus' teaching cut like a knife, hammered out hard truths. Jesus, in a very real sense, had a doctorate in the arts and a doctorate in the sciences. And he never even went to school. Jesus was fully divine. Jesus knew all things, which meant that he knew what to teach and how to teach it in any given occasion. There were times that he spoke in figurative language, and there were times when he spoke in plain truth. Jesus was the master teacher. He was an elite expositor. Jesus was the prince of preachers. He was the smartest of all theologians. Jesus is the most relevant teacher to have ever lived because he preached the truth. But he did it with color, and he did it with a splash of irony, and he did it in a way that was easy to listen to. And yet, as we see this morning, I'm just going to tell you straight what's going on. Jesus was a gifted broker of the truth. His style shines brighter than the brightest star, and his content, his content cut deeper than a laser knife. His way with words convicted hearts, changed lives, and instilled hope all at the same time. Well, if you are here today, and you want to hear from the master teacher that has a perfect balance of truth and love, then look no further than to the teaching of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to give you three headings that outline this text as we wrap up the Upper Room Discourse. First, 
in verses 25 to 29, we will see straight talk from Jesus. And then in verse, we will see an honest response from the disciples. And then in verses 32 and 33, we will see a clear description of what's about to happen. Let's start first with straight talk from Jesus. Look at verse 25 with me, if you will. Jesus said, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. The first blank in your notes, if you're uh, keeping up with the blanks there, just says from figures of speech to frank talk. That's what we see Jesus saying in this verse. He's moving now from using figures of speech to giving us straight talk. A figure of speech is a word or phrase that put meaning from its literal definition. It can be a metaphor or a simile designed to, designed to make a comparison, or it can be the repetition of alliteration or the exaggeration of a hyperbole in order to make a dramatic impact. And Jesus was a master of using figures of speech to communicate so many things. Jesus had spoken about raising up the temple in three days, but he wasn't talking about the building. He was talking about his body. He talked about being born again to Nicodemus, but not going back into your mother's womb, but being spiritually born again. He talked about how living water quenches thirst. He talked even about how rivers of living water would, throw, would flow through believers. Uh, Jesus talks about himself in the metaphor when he says that you've gotta, if you're going to be a follower of him, you've got to be one who eats the flesh of his body and who drinks the blood. That's what the believer times throughout his teaching in the gospels, we see him using this figurative language. Even here in the gospel of John, we've been studying all the I am statements when he says, I am the bread of life and I am the light of the world and I am the door and I am the good shepherd and I am the vine. Time and time and time again, we see Jesus using figurative speech. And I wanna to say to you this morning, there's nothing wrong with using figurative speech. If the Lord did it, it's something we ought to employ in preaching. It is something that is used in, throughout the Bible. Figurative speech is colorful. It is relatable. Figurative speech appeals to our senses and our experiences as human beings. Figurative speech was created by God and was used masterfully by Jesus to communicate to us his truth. But here in verse 25, there is something changing in Jesus's tone. There is something changing in him. The hour is now urgent. The hour is now upon us where Jesus says in verse 2 of this same chapter, look at verse 2 of chapter 16, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Obviously, we're getting up here to the very end of Jesus's life. It's almost like Jesus is saying here in verse 25, I don't have time to play around anymore. I've got to get down to business. The end is rapidly approaching, so I am going to no longer be speaking to you in figurative language, but I will now tell you plainly about the Father. Again, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, I only have a few hours left before I am crucified, and so I'm going to give it to you straight. Not that the mode of communication before was unhelpful or cumbersome, but the mode of communication at this hour would be more direct. When Jesus says, I will, here in verse 25, that, verse, that word plainly means 
a use of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. That word plainly means to be bold. It literally means to be frank. Jesus has given us straight talk. The word plainly used nine times in the Gospel of John. The word is used in John 10, 24, where we read that the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense of your Christ? Tell us plainly. We see Jesus use the word again in John 11, verse 14, when there was some confusion around the fact that Lazarus had fallen asleep. And by that, Jesus meant that he had died, but they thought maybe he did mean that he had fallen asleep. And so in John eleven fourteen, 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And so as we can see, there are many times when Jesus, Jesus says that he will tell you plainly about the Father. Jesus wants to bring the Father into focus. Maybe he felt like the disciples had learned a whole lot from him for these last three, three and a half years. And even though Jesus continued to refer them to the Father, I was sent from the Father, I only say what he tells me to say, all of that kind of language. He wants to make sure at the very end that these disciples are connecting directly with God. And so he wants to give them a little bit of plain talk about God. He doesn't want them to be unfamiliar or distant from the Father in any way, but he wants to speak plainly about the Father. There is something that Jesus wants to say about the Father, and we see it here in the next verse. Your next blank says, from looking to me to looking directly to God. The blank there is the word directly. From looking to me to looking directly to 26. He says, in that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. So he starts off verse 26 saying, in that day. That would be the same day that Jesus had mentioned earlier in verse 23, where he said, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So verse 23, and here in verse 26, I think are referring to the same day, and that would be the day after the crucifixion, the day after the resurrection, and I would go so far as to say the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came in power, and in that moment, the disciples and the followers of Jesus were told to pray to God in Jesus' name. You see, they, they could just talk to Jesus when he was still on earth and speak to him directly to make their request. But once he's gone, they need to be speaking direct, do so in the name of Jesus. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 26, when I'm gone, you won't be asking anything of me because I won't be here. You'll be asking in a direct sense from the Father. You'll be asking in his name. While I'm here on earth, you haven't had to pray in my name. But when I go back to the Father, you will be praying in my name to the Father, and that will be a joy for you. It will be a delight for you. And all of your prayers prayed in accordance with God's will will be answered. And we can learn to trust God that his answers may not always be what we want, but we know they'll always be what we need. And so we're to bring our prayers to the Father. Not only that, but here in verse 26, Jesus is saying, and I'm not going to ask him for you. You got to talk to him directly. I want you to feel comfortable crying out to Yahweh, King God, with the creator of the heavens and the earth, the God who parted the Red Sea. I want you to talk to that God. In the Jewish mindset, it was a little bit intimidating. You could even pronounce the name Yahweh. 
They couldn't even enter into that personal relationship because of the temple and because of the veil. There was all this confusion about how do we get in the presence of God? And Jesus is saying, you get there through me. I'm going to go before you. And as I go before you and die in your place, that veil will be ripped from top to bottom. And I want you to enter in to the presence of God. And I want you to talk to him like a man talks with his friend. You have the opportunity. Don't come praying to me. You talk to him. You know, when we think about the Roman Catholic Church so often teaches that you might want to pray to Mary, maybe it feels easier for you to talk to Mary, to God, and if Mary goes on your behalf to make that request to God, who could turn down the mother of Jesus? You ever learned that? Some of you who are from a Roman Catholic church, you ever heard that? You guys are a little bit stiff this morning. All right, got Catholics pray to Mary, okay? And it's not right. She has no power. She is not a mediator. She can't take your prayers to God no more than any person. Roman Catholics often pray to various saints who've been authorized to take your prayers to God. And every time I talk to a Roman Catholic, they give me this argument. Well, don't you think? I mean, I know, you know, I know we should pray to God, but don't you think if Mary goes for us, there's a better chance that we'll get our prayers answered? No! There's no better chance. Don't pray to Mary or any saint ever. You have access to the Father. And you have access through Jesus Christ. And he wants you to come praying directly to the Father. And not only does he want you to come praying directly to the Father, it's because of this. Look at the next verse there. It's because he loves you. Look at our next blank there. From the love you have for Jesus to the love that God has for you. You see what's going on in verse 27? He said, hey, I want you to pray to the Father. I'm not going to do it. I want, you to pray for, I want you to pray directly to him. And then verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you loved me and have believed that I came from God. Well, how encouraging that he just kind of starts off. He's like, hey, guys, I want you to go pray to the Father. You know, it kind of reminds me sometimes if we're at somebody's home and we got our kids with us and maybe one of my younger kids when they were younger, toddler age, wanted to play with a certain toy in the house. And they might look at me and say, hey, dad, can I play with that toy? And I'm like, well, why don't you ask the, the, the you know, the host and hostess? Because I want to kind of encourage them. I'll just come to me. Why don't you go ask them? And they're like, you know, can I play with the toy? You know, it's like, it's like that idea of like Jesus is shepherding his disciples. Say, hey, go to the father. Guess what? He loves you. He's waiting to hear your request. He's honored by the fact that you would come to him with your prayers and with your requests. You don't have to ask me to pray to the Father for you. You ask him directly because God loves you. He loves his own. It is much easier to approach a loving father than a hateful one. If I've ever had a grumpy day, and I've had a couple here and there through my life, I've noticed my kids don't want to come talk to me in that moment. Why? Because I've already bitten off their heads about a couple things, and they're like, well, don't talk to Dad. Our Heavenly Father is never like that. He's never angry at you. He's never honorary. Your prayer, you have immediate access through the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves you with an undying love, and he welcomes you into his presence 
to make your petitions and your prayers made known to God. What a beautiful teaching this is. Jesus pointing us back in plain talk to the Father. Come to the Father. Pray to the Father. He's saying here in verse 27, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Make your request to the Father because he loves you. And I'll just go ahead and say it unless it, this verse is confusing. He loved you first. You say, well, Adam, when I'm kind of just reading that one verse, it acts like, well, maybe he loves me because I loved him. And how does that work? It works like 1 John 4, 19 says it works. We love because he first loves. We're able to love and obey because he loved us even when we were unlovely, Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible couldn't be more clear about the fact that God loved us first. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. But verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He loved us first. There's no doubt about it. This verse is simply saying, hey, as a Christian who's been loved by God, remember he's talking to his disciples. Judas has already left. These are just believers in this small circle here. As a Christian who's loved by God, he loved you first. And as you, and as you walk in obedience to him, he's, you, you, you have that close relationship. Not only that positional relationship that I belong to him, but that father-son, father-daughter relationship that is so very special. In fact, the word love here is not the word agape. We love the word agape. We, we prize that word as Christians, and rightly so. We like to champion that word, I agape you. You know, we love agape. It's such a beautiful word. That word agape would have the emphasis of it's really not so much about how you feel but it's a love of the will. Agape love is an others-focused love. It's the act of the will and a true act, not primarily based on feeling, but on commitment. But the word love here is not agape, and we love agape. This is the word, as you know, phileo. This is phileo love. Loves you. It's that phileo love translated as brotherly love. This is a love of a deep nature. It is a love of caring, affection. It is consistent with agape love. They do not oppose each other. It just has a different emphasis. And this phileo love is Jesus saying, God likes you and he wants to be with you. And it's not just because he made a covenant with you and he's got to save you by grace no matter what. Though that's true. And he does and he will. But he also likes you. He enjoys your company. You're his child. He designed you and create, he fashioned you together in your mother's womb. He called you out of darkness. He knows you by name. He delights in you. He rejoices over you with singing, Zephaniah 3.17 says. He rejoices over you with this concept, this care, and this love that God has for you. It's the love even between a parent and a child, between two brothers. And Jesus uses this word to emphasize a special fatherly affection that God has for you. The disciples 
believe that Jesus came from God. And anyone who believes that Jesus is of God will be loved by God. However, if you reject Jesus, God will reject you. So if anything, this verse is pointing out to us, this is not universalism. This is not saying God loves all people in the same way salvifically because there are enemies and reprobates who will be punished in hell forever. But in this context, he's saying, I love you because you guys are believers. And as believers, again, verse 27, already taught them what it means. If you love me, you will obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, then not only do you don't love me, but you don't even know me. But if you know me and you love me, you're going to walk with me. And as you're walking with me, you're going to feel God's love. And you're going to see God's love. And you're going to know God's love. And you're going to experience God's love. And it's because of that relationship we have with God that Jesus is saying, hey, I want you to pray to the Father. You guys got to pray to him because he loves you. I can't get over the love of God. I can't get over the first time I had a woman tell me that she loved me. She's my beautiful wife outside of my mom, my sister, my family. I had never heard those words before from a beautiful woman. She's not with us this morning. She's caring for our child, Zoe. He's not feeling so well. But if she was sitting here, I was like, hey, baby, that changed my life. When she looked at me and she said, yes, we kind of reserved that love word until engagement. Just us. It's something we decided we're not going to say I love you till we get engaged. But man, when we got engaged, we wore that word out. <laughs> it's like, will you marry me? Yes, I love you. And I'm like, no, I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. And it's like that scene in that movie. I, I love you, Mr. Darcy. I love you. I love I could not hear it enough. And when she would tell me she loved me, man, that does something to a man. It's like, she loves me. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Man, that feels good, doesn't it? And it encourages you, and it strengthens you, and it gives you confidence, and it makes me want to honor her and serve her and come alongside her because we know that love is more than words, right? It's the actions that you do. So there's all this balance in the word love here, but we're just understanding here from the Father that he loves you. Jesus wants you praying. That's plain talk. That's straight talk from Jesus. Don't miss it. The next blank that we see here, actually, it's just a point D, says then he's going to emphasize from coming from the Father to returning to him. And I, so I broke this one down to a few points. The next one is number one, divine nature. Divine nature. That's what we're talking about here in verse 28 when Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Well, here we're seeing again the emphasis is from I came from the Father to it's going to be like I'm returning to him because he's talking about departing to be with the Father. But just the fact that he does say that he came from and he returns, it just reminds us of his divine nature, that one of those things that Jesus makes very clear in his plain talk is the fact that Jesus did indeed come from the Father, just like we read in John 8, 42, when Jesus said, if God were your Father, you would love me for God. And I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. In other words, it's pretty clear that Jesus knew where he came from and he knew where he was going. In fact, in John 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So in other words, here in our text, John 16, 28, when Jesus said, I came from, he is literally saying, 
I came out of. That's what the language says. I came out of. In this context, it has the meaning of to come out of by the way of ancestry or as in proceeding from someone's loins. Isn't that what John 1.1 tells us? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is simply Jesus affirming his divine nature, substance as God, that he was of the same essence as God, that the Father and the Son are one. Jesus is not using figurative speech to say this. He is saying it plainly, and Jesus is also affirming, number two, not only does he have divine nature, but there's a divine incarnation here in the middle of verse 28 when he says again that I have come into the world so he came from the father we see there again his divine nature he came from the father out of the father and now he's come into the world well that's talking about the incarnation Jesus is saying that he has come God with us he has come into the flesh right in order for him to come into time and space he had to be born as a baby and the incarnation is the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us John 1 14 the incarnation emphasizes that Jesus is here to minister to his people. He became a human being. He lived with human beings. He came to save his own. He came to be a friend. And he came to be a brother. But most importantly, he came to be our substitute and our sacrifice. And he came to die in our place so that we could be born again. Without the incarnation, there would be no salvation. So Jesus is teaching some solid doctrine here in his plain talk. I came from God. And I came into the world, and then number three, and I did what he called me to do. We could just call it divine accomplishment, divine accomplishment. And he says, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. In order for Jesus to accomplish what God sent him to do, he must first come. Then he must die on the cross as our perfect sacrifice. And then he was raised from the dead. And then he ascended back to be with the Father and so he's simply saying, look, I came on a mission. My mission is about done. And after I die and after I'm raised and after I spend 40 more days with you, I'm going back up into heaven to be with God. That's what he's going to do. Jesus would walk down the path, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. And he made each one of these steps for you. He suffered for you. Those of us going to Israel next month, will walk down the Via Dolorosa. Now, it's just the best um, attempt to track back some of the steps of Jesus on the cross. And you understand, those of you who've been there, some of it has these Catholic overtones, and maybe we, maybe we get off step a little bit here or there. Who knows? We can't know for sure. But there's like these several stops on the way of suffering. And as we walk through that track on that given day, I just, I just sit there and just think, oh, my goodness. Like, Jesus did this for me. He walked down this way of suffering for me. He went to the cross for my soul. What amazing truth that Jesus is saying. He's just reminding them, hey, I'm there's crucifixion, there's resurrection, there's 40 days of fellowship, then there's the ascension, and I'm out of here, and you guys will be needing to talk one-on-one -on -one with God. He was declaring what was, what is and what is to come. This is Jesus being more clear than crystal. This is Jesus cutting it straight with his disciples. This is Jesus putting some final touches on his expository sermon. 
Well, now that we've seen these plain truths from Jesus, let's look at number two, our second major heading, an honest response from the disciples. Your next blank says the clarity of plain speech. Verse 29, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now, I do not believe that the disciples are mocking Jesus in any with the context at all. Not only are they not mocking him, I don't believe that they're chiding Jesus or saying like, oh, now we get it, Jesus. Finally, you said something we could understand. I don't really think that's the spirit of the occasion. I think they're just simply acknowledging that they are so in tune right now in this moment, if they've missed it a bunch of other times throughout the course of Jesus's life, where they totally blew it, they're like, hey, Jesus, we're tracking with you. We hear exactly what you're saying. Thank you for telling us you're giving us plain talk. We see what you're saying. We understand what you're saying. Now, there might have still been just a little bit of, of uh, you know, need for filling in uh, the, the spaces because they all end up running and they're afraid and they don't know what to do at times and they're not truly emboldened until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. But they are at least acknowledging here that they are understanding that Jesus is not using uh, the figurative speech, plain speech, and that encourages them. They're, they're being good receptors. And so I just want to, again, classify that figurative speech uh, is really one that belongs more to the arts than it belongs to the sciences. The word for figurative speech or languages refers to veiled teaching more on the lines of a proverb, a maxim, or a parable. And the purpose of such teaching was to mercifully veil the truth from unbelievers and reveal that same truth to true believers. And so the question may come up again, well, why did Jesus use figurative speech more like the arts? And when did he move to the sciences? And why did he do that? There's a whole conversation with that. And uh, we don't have time to really get into it. But in, the, in, in Matthew chapter 13, they ask him point blank, Jesus, why are you speaking in parables? Okay, maybe we do have a little bit of time. Turn with me to Matthew 13, because I just want to make sure you see this, because I think it's a, it's a great question in case you're wondering why again and does he speak plainly? So after he gives the parable of the soils, where some of those seeds fell on, you know, the stiff soil and some fell on the path, the rocky soil, uh, all of those things are happening. And when Jesus gets done teaching that parable, he just stops. I mean, when he eventually teaches the parable, he ends with the, uh, with the idea that, uh, you know, that this is the story, that's the way it ends. And it's kind of like, I mean, it's a perfect example of figurative speech. In fact, I would say the parable of the soils, it's inviting. It's, it causes one to meditate and to contemplate. Like, what, what is Jesus saying? And so look at verse uh, 10 of chapter 13. Then the disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? Which is one example of figurative speech. The disciples want to know straight up what Jesus is doing. Why is he using figurative speech? Verse 11, he answered them, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. It has not been given. So Jesus' main answer there in verse 11 is saying that those who've been regenerated by the Spirit of God have been enlightened by the Spirit of God. Believers can understand figurative speech with the help of the Holy Spirit, but unbelievers cannot comprehend, and understanding has not been granted to them. Verse 12, for the one who has, more will be given. 
and he will have an abundance. But for the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the believer has knowledge, and more and more knowledge will be given to them. But the one who doesn't have spiritual knowledge, whatever knowledge they think they have, it will be taken away. And then he says in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus is saying, I spoke to them in parables to make it clear that you may think you see and hear spiritual things unless God gives you the understanding. Really, what we're getting at is grace is a divine gift. Jesus teaches in figurative speech to say, hey, I'm going to teach this with color and in a story, and those who've rebelled against me and those who've rejected me and those who don't believe in me, they will not understand it. Because you can't get to heaven by human ingenuity. You can't get to heaven by human interpretation. You can't get to heaven by having a Bachelor of Arts and understanding the literature that you love to read. You can only get to heaven by God opening your eyes and saying, here is the truth of the gospel, and you can only see it because he wants you to see it. And he opens your eyes and he opens your heart. Beautiful truth it is that you can see. And for those who can't see, he's veiling that truth so they're not able to see it. In fact, he goes on in this Matthew 13 passage and he says, indeed, verse 14, indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says you will indeed hear but never understand and you will indeed see but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed. That's the key verse line in the verse. And their eyes they have closed. So it's showing their heart. This is really not about interpretation. Can I understand the stories and the words? It's really about the fact that their hearts are closed because they shut their own hearts. They didn't want God. They didn't want his truth. They didn't want his holiness. They wanted their own sim in the door. And so they had shut down their own eyes and their ears. They didn't want to hear from Jesus. They stuck their fingers in the ears when he talked at times. So what we're saying is that they, they could have, if, if they look at the rest of the verse, verse 15, um, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. Jesus is saying this prophecy is being fulfilled because if they did turn, if they did repent, if they did acknowledge, I would open up everything to them. But they're not because they want to remain in their own stubbornness and in their own sin. And so what we're seeing again is these are some of the reasons why Jesus spoke in figurative speech to begin with. And the disciples here are now just simply saying back to our main text here in John 16. They're just saying, oh, okay, now we get it. We see with more clarity that the truth is the disciples' explanation of that parable as well, but at least their ears were open and their eyes were able to see. And I think that we see a lot of figurative speech in the Gospels followed by plain speech. Jesus tells a story and then he explains it. Jesus uses art and then he uses science. Jesus is creative, creative, and then he's clear. Jesus' teaching is both veiled and it's unveiled. Jesus teaches in mystery, and then he also reveals that same mystery. And so in John 16, 29, the disciples are simply saying, I got you. Right now, you're giving it to me in straight talk. 
right now you are giving me plain talk and I am understanding we are on the same wavelength, which leads to that next blank there just says the comprehension of plain speech, verse 30 and 31. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? The disciples are fully comprehending what it is that Jesus is saying. If there was any confusion, now things are extremely clear. The disciples now understand more than ever that Jesus was from God, that he's returning back to God. Not only do they fully comprehend that Jesus was from God and that he's going back to God, but he had this, the same nature as God. Now they realize that Jesus had come into this world, but that he will also be leaving and going to the Father. And in order for that to happen, again, there's a crucifixion, a resurrection, and an ascension. So Jesus is speaking plainly about these things and continues to do so. After the resurrection, Jesus also made it clear. You know, he's talking about, I'm now talking to you in plain speech. Well, guess what? When you track with the rest of the words of Jesus from this point on, he's pretty clear, pretty plain, frank speech. When he, he made it clear to Mary Magdalene that he needed to ascend to disciples were his spiritual brothers. In John 20, verse 17, after the resurrection, Jesus said, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but I go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. We see Jesus explaining things plainly to the two disciples on the, the road to Emmaus. Remember that one, Luke 24, 27. These two disciples are walking to Emmaus. Have you heard what happened? Jesus shows up, but he doesn't reveal himself to them yet. And he's like, what are you talking about? And they start talking about everything that happened. And then in Luke 24, 27, and then Jesus started talking to them about what it all had happened, namely his crucifixion and resurrection. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. So Jesus gave a whole lot of plain talk from this point out. He's explaining. He's teaching. He's making sure everybody sees it clearly, that they hear it clearly. In fact, in Luke 24, 45 and following, it says he opened their minds to understand the scripture. He said to them, thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So this is no longer Jesus teaching in figurative speech anymore, but he's speaking plainly. In fact, I would say to you that if you examine the teaching of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels to the teaching of Jesus through the Apostles as recorded in the Epistles, there is a clear difference. The Gospels, in the Gospels, there is an abundance of figurative language while the epistles are filled with a more didactic approach. In the Gospels, there are parables. In the epistles, there is propositional truth. In the Gospels, there is more art, while the epistles have more science. It says on these verses, quote, There is here no longer purposeful choice of words with more than one meaning, didactic declaration and explanation more and more take place Take the place of, of truth set forth by means of, mystery, of mysterious utterances and seeming uh, contradictions. Then he says this, the seed of the gospel has become more of a fully developed plant. So he's just kind of saying, hey, Jesus, he taught 
with the figurative language, and then he gets plain, and in the epistles, we see a little bit more of that plainness. And so Jesus is saying here in verse 31, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Or it could be translated, now you believe. And whether you see it as a question or as a statement, it really makes no difference. Either way, Jesus is encouraged and is simply acknowledging that now his disciples believe. Now they understand. Now they can comprehend. Now they are getting the plain speech that he is giving to them. Today, we are able to understand with incredible clarity because we have the Holy Spirit who is our teacher the Holy Spirit enlightens us. He reveals his word in our hearts and he makes it plain for us to understand because he has made it known to us. He has renewed our minds. He has clarified our thoughts. He has cleansed our hearts. Now, I'm not saying that a good Bible student is not going to get bogged down as you study the Bible, but I'm just saying the simple truth of the gospel and the simple truth of you obeying Jesus and loving him ought to be crystal clear. And before we get all up in a hubbub about trying to understand some of the more difficult things, let's make sure we're hearing what Jesus really wants us to hear, which he wants us to hear at all. But you get what I'm saying. You better get the gospel right. And you better get obedience right. You better love like he taught us to love, even if we're figuring out the rest of it. Now, I got to move on to our third point so I don't have to continue this next week, right? But our third heading is this, a clear description of what's about to happen. Remember, Jesus is giving plain talk here, so he's going to plainly tell us what's going to happen here in these next couple of hours. Number one, or A in your outline, the disciples will scatter. They will scatter. Verse 32, behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. The disciples will scatter. Since Jesus is talking plainly, he decides to tell them more about what's about to happen. And in the next few hours, Jesus will be struck. And when he is struck, the sheep will scatter. He says it this way in Matthew 26, 31, You will all fall of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus is simply saying that when he is arrested, all the disciples are going to run. And run they did. One so quickly that he left his robe behind. And throughout the night, everybody abandoned Jesus. Peter comes back at a distance. John comes back. John was the only one there at the foot of the cross. But Jesus is saying, I was never alone. The Father was with me. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. But Jesus is teaching, plain talk here. You guys are going to scatter. I'm going to be struck. You're going to scatter. The Father's still with me. Next bullet point of what he taught, verse 33 in the middle, says tribulation is cut. He wants to tell them straight up what's going to happen. You guys are going to scatter. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We're focusing here at B. Tribulation is coming, the middle of that verse there. Jesus is telling his disciples so that they will have peace in the midst of their tribulation. The word tribulation, as you probably know, means that it is trouble. It's something that inflicts distress. It means oppression. 
It means affliction. It literally means pressure. Jesus would be in pressure situations. And so will you. And he's telling his disciples, you better get ready. Pressure's coming. Tribulation's coming. And you say, well, Adam, what about all the stuff about how God loves me? Yeah, and he wants you to go through pressure. That's what he does. He's building in you a character that you could never imagine when he takes you through trials. And it's coming in this world. And it's coming in your life. And we've been talking about this for weeks, about how if they hated me, they're going to hate you. John 15, 18. John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Part of me is really encouraged about that. I mean, I'd much rather hear that kind of truth from Jesus than him giving me the Osteen talk. Oh, it's all good. You have your best life right now every day with Jesus. I don't even know if Osteen says that, you know, but you know what I'm saying. Like, it's all good all the time. That's a lot of fluff. What we need to hear is the truth. The truth is the world will hate your guts, and they're going to collect some of you and kill you. In this world, you will have tribulation. This is straight talk from Jesus. We understand from church history, his disciples died a martyr's death except for John who went exiled on Patmos. Church history, Peter was crucified upside down because he was not worthy to die like his Lord. In this day and time, we complain about, you know, Republicans and Democrats and debate and back and forth stuff going on all the time. Look, we haven't seen anything yet. We live in California. We're on the cutting edge. You ain't seen anything yet. It's coming. I'm trying to prepare you. I might be the first to go. Who's going to step up in this pulpit when I go down? Is it you? Is it you? You better be ready. Persecution, tribulation is coming. But then we see also your last blank, peace and victory are found in Christ. Praise, pressing, right? There's delight in the words of Jesus that are so refreshing. I have said these things to you so that in me you may have peace. You can have peace in this world, but it is only found by having peace in Christ. Please note, peace is not found in a bottle, and it's not found in pills, and it's not found in smoking weed. Somebody can say amen to that, please. All right? It's not found in watching Netflix. Peace is not found on the golf course. It's not even found at the beach. Peace is found in Christ. Having peace with God because of his sacrifice for your soul. And that peace is that kind of peace that passes all understanding. Man, it's the peace that we need today. It's peace in God. This week, Lisa and I had the D.C. We sat at the presidential prayer breakfast on Thursday morning. It was an honor to sit with Christian senators, congressmen and women together to pray for the president. As we were in that room praying and hearing different scriptures read, C.C. Winus was invited to sing. She's a gospel singer, beautiful woman, beautiful songs. She sang a song about peace with God. And she just kept talking about, we need a little peace with God. It's a sweet little song. But right in the middle of it, she just stopped and said, I'm going to tell you what I'm talking about. And she quoted Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. And I just sat there and I was just like, thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word being quoted right here in this room with thousands of pastors and politicians and with President Trump and with Pres Vice President um, Pence and with the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, and even with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. She's getting a little peace from God right there in that moment. And you know Donald needs it too. They need peace from God. That's what they need. That's what you have if you're in Christ. You got to be in Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting in him, walking with him to be at, at peace with God. And in the last part of verse 33, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Man, if you're not encouraged by that, it's in me you'll have peace. And it's take heart, which means take courage, which means have hope, which means don't be afraid. It means be confident and courageous because God is going to work in you and through you. God is going to turn your sorrow into joy. God is going to turn your sadness into gladness. God is going to turn your fear into faith because that's what he does because he has overcome. And when you are in Christ, you too will be an overcomer so that you can face whatever fear that you're facing and know that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, to know that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So where are you today in your faith? Jesus speaks artistically, but Jesus also speaks plainly. And in our text this morning, Jesus has given us some straight talk Hopefully, you have seen clearly today that God loves you. And anything you ask in Jesus' name, he will give to you. Jesus was crucified, and he was raised from the dead for you. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, he is your answer. He is what you need. You're here today, and maybe you've been raised in church, but you've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. I'm calling you this day. To find your peace in him by turning from all of your sin, turning to the beautiful love of God that we see that he so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's not just up here, people. Not just, oh, I could quote that verse. No, no. Has this verse changed you? Have you been transformed by the faith that only God can give? Maybe you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever. As I just mentioned, your only, the only way that you can ever have peace is to have it in Christ. Please don't look to our government to save you. Please don't look to our president to save you. Look to Jesus Christ. You're here, you're a believer, same tr truths. Put your hope in God. Know Jesus has given straight talk this morning through his word to you that in this world you will have tribulations, but in Jesus you will have peace in Jesus, you can take courage. And in Jesus, you are an overcomer. And there's nothing figurative about that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity this morning to dive into your word, to be encouraged by the words of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the straight talk. We're grateful for figurative talk too, Lord. You know how you've taught us so much through the beautiful parables of Christ and all of the different literary arts used. 
But God, we just thank you for that today. There's some plain talk that we need to hear from our Lord and Savior about what it means that we're loved by God and what it means that we need to pray directly to God and what it means that in this world we will have tribulation, but we have peace and that we can be overcomers in Christ. Oh, how we need to hear these truths this morning. And so I pray, God, that you would do your work in our midst, in our hearts, through your word. Thank you for the balance of art and science that the Bible brings and hermeneutical interpretation that the Spirit alone is able to enlighten our hearts so that we might understand that God loves us. Thank you for that love that we see in Christ. Fill us now with your spirit, and may we walk this day by faith. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.